So the last 15 years have seen an explosion of comic book movies. I don't know if you've actually seen or noticed this or seen this, but I read an article the other day that said that almost every living Oscar winner will soon have currently starred in a Marvel, DC comic, whatever movie. It's ridiculous. We're obsessed with these things. Um, fundamental to any superhero movie is the origin story. I'm not talking about ancient mythological tales about how the world was made. It's the genre of a superhero narrative that goes back in an attempt to explain how the superhero got to be who he or she is. So, to give you a few familiar ones, the Hulk gets hit by gamma radiation. Spider-Man is bitten by a radioactive spider. Superman comes from Krypton. Batman has a childhood fear of bats. So on and so forth, you get the point. Part of what makes an origin story so compelling and so interesting is that superheroes are these extraordinary, set-apart people, and we want to know how in the world did they get those powers? But also, how did they handle having those powers? So, for example, it's cool to know that Superman comes from Krypton, which is why he's crazy and he can do insane stuff, but it's more interesting to know when he was 10, when Clark Kent was at school, how he handled the fact that he could, you know, fly home if he wanted to. For that reason, there's always the tension in those stories of the normal guy or girl and the superhero. You see Peter Parker struggling to learn what it means to be Spider-Man, Bruce Wayne as Batman, Superman as Clark Kent. It's the tension of learning who they are and who they're meant to be because of that identity. And it's also the tension of learning what it means to be a member of the Wayne family or the Clark family and also be a superhero at the same time. Now, superheroes aren't real. We know that, right? Spoiler alert. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth is a real historic person. Our entire history hinges on this man's life. It is 2016 because that many years ago, this guy was born. Whether you like it or not, that is a fact. Our history snaps in half at the birth of this actual human. And we get one story in between his birth and the age of 30. One. And this is it. Fascinating. Jesus being left behind the caravan when he's 12. It's so subtle, you can just blaze right by it. Luke could have picked a billion other vignettes from Jesus' life, but he chose specifically this one. So, today I want to do two things. First, we're going to dig into this passage and figure out why the Bible decided to give us this story, what it teaches us about Jesus. And secondly, I want to ask what that means for us. What does that, what does that say to us? What do we do with that today? I think that in the beauty and mercy of God, we will find that this is all we need to know about Jesus in between his infancy and age 30, and it actually directly applies to us. And we'll discover that, similar to Kevin's sermon last week, the kernel in this story boils down to family and actually what it means to live in the tension of two families. We'll see that in Jesus' situation and then in ours. So that's where we're headed. Sound good? So what does this text mean? What is it, what is it saying about Jesus? What does it teach to us? I want to begin bringing it to life by ask, asking some classic W questions. Who, when, where, and what? So who in this story? This is Jesus, the same person who has a baby, had so much spoken over him and about him in the preceding chapters, except now he's 12. Again, there are no throwaway details, and 12 is actually a really important biblical age. 
So the tradition of the bar mitzvah holds that age 13 for boys and 12 for girls, children become accountable to the law. Bar mitzvah actually means son of the law, or bat mitzvah actually means daughter of the law. And that's not, that stemmed later in the history of Judaism, but it stemmed from something that was present in biblical Judaism, which is that this is like the age of accountability. This is when somebody's actions, when their words were taken seriously. So, Samuel was 12 when he was called in the temple. If you guys remember that story, when Samuel was asleep as a boy, tradition has it that he was 12. Josiah was 12 when he began to reign over Jerusalem. It's kind of funny because it's six years later, but the closest thing we have to this, I think, would be a story that said, Jesus, when he was 18 and graduated from high school, was sitting in church. You're kind of, it, it kind of immediately has you think, okay, this is kind of a coming of age, this is when... He's making his own decisions. So that's, um, that's the who. When? It's the time of Passover, which plays a really important role in the book of Luke. There are two of them, and this is the first of two, and it kind of hinges on the second and the first, as we'll soon see. Where? Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. The temple is the hub of God's presence on earth and is central in all the Old Testament Gospels. The last time Jesus was in the temple when he was a baby, and that's when Simeon and Anna prophesied over him, the story of Luke's will climax with Jesus back at the temple. And in the book of Acts, when Pentecost starts, we're at the temple. What? What is Jesus doing? He is sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. In short, Jesus is already doing what he would spend the rest of his public ministry doing, debating the scriptures with the community of faith. Jesus isn't just asking questions, if you notice. He's also, people are amazed at his understanding and his answers. So, when we bring all these things together, you start to realize, not just a cute story about a kid getting left behind, you have lots of pay attention alarms going on in the scriptures. This is Jesus at the age of accountability, in the center, the hub of God's presence on earth, interpreting the scriptures for the first time in the Gospels. This is his first words. And when you look a little closer, you realize that this is the cherry on the top of the first two chapters of Luke. In the readings we did through Christmas and Advent, you have all of these people saying things about Jesus. So, think about it. The angel Gabriel, Elizabeth, Zachariah, angels, shepherds, wise men, Simeon, Anna, everybody is just ecstatic about this special little baby. This precious story acts as the great crescendo at the end of all those things and before his public ministry because here we have words from the mouth of Jesus himself. This is his own self-identification, affirming that he knew exactly who he was and what he was about. To pause and reflect a little bit. This is very different than your average superhero story, which typically they're struggling and grappling with their own identity, and they have to have people in their community come around them and kind of encourage them to be who they are. So you have Clark Kent's mom who has to, you know, bend down to her crying son and say, sweetie, you can blow laser, you know, cars up with laser beams out of your eyes. You're just not like the other boys. Like, you, you have to do more, you know. Here's the exact opposite. His parents, teachers in the temple, everybody's confused, and yet he knows exactly who he is. He gives his own self-affirmation. And what does he affirm? See, the importance of this passage isn't just that Jesus speaks. It's what Jesus affirms when he speaks. And I think he affirms two things. 
And both of them revolve around his idea of family. So grab your Bible or your bulletin and look at something with me real quick. Check out verses 48 and 49. So this is really the heart of the passage, and in verse 48, Mary understandably has a classic mom freak-out moment. In my mind, I picture this like Macaulay Culkin's mom in Home Alone when she's on the plane, and she's like, did I leave the garage? And then, <laughs> I imagine Mary on a donkey, like, Joe, did we leave the wineskins? Did we... No, Jesus! And then she freaks out. So when she finally gets back, I can't be the first person who's made that connection. That, that has to be a thing. Uh, when she gets back, she says, look at verse 48, son... Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Did you catch that? Mary says, your father and I, and Jesus responds with, my father. We know this was a remarkable thing for Jesus to say because first, nobody understood it. If you look at verse 50, everybody's like, huh? What are you talking about? But second, Mary treasured these things in her heart on the way home. If you remember the last time Mary did that, it was when a bunch of random shepherds came and told her that angels had appeared to them and told her that her baby was the joy and salvation of the world. That means that this passage is, according to Luke, just as powerful and important as the scene of nativity. When Jesus responds in such a groundbreaking way, at age 12, he is identifying himself as the Son of God. Most folks who have spent time on this passage notice there's this beautiful, filial, and intimate relationship that Jesus shares with the Father. Jesus, speaking and listening to the scriptures in the temple, feels like he is curled up on his dad's couch. He's saying, I know who my family is, I know who I am, and this is the place. This is home. However, notice, right after Mary freaks out and says, for goodness sakes, Jesus, get in the back of the caravan this moment, Jesus responds in a way, yes, ma'am. He submits, and in so doing, shows that he is both son of God and son of man. Though his priorities are crystal clear, his identity as the son of God does not overwhelm his humanity or the fact that Mary was his mom and Joseph was his dad. So, because of that, there is a tension in this story. I don't know if you feel that between his two families. So, the first thing that Jesus affirms is that. It's his identity, who he is, who his family is. The second is his work. Okay? When I was in high school, I was super obsessed with disc golf. If you're confused by what that is, disc golf is like the greatest game ever invented. You use frisbees, basically. You throw it into cages, and you use the rules of golf. It's beautiful. We'll go play sometime if you want. Um, but if I would have been lost in high school, my parents eventually would have come to the Johnson Road Disc Golf Course in Memphis, Tennessee, and found me. And I would have said, Mom and Dad, why did you look anywhere else? You should have known I would be playing disc golf. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus' identity wasn't just a cognitive thing. It spilled over into what he spent his time doing. Every prophecy about Jesus in Luke's first two chapters was both about who this boy would be and what he would do. And here Jesus is saying, come on, mom and dad. Didn't you know I would be doing what I love, doing what I was born to do? Some of your translations, I don't know if you've read this in other uh, translations before, it says, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? You guys might have heard that before. That's because what we're translating from is actually elliptical and reads something like, didn't you know that I would be of my father or in my father? 
And that language that Jesus used where he says, I must be in my father's house, is the same exact language Jesus would use when Peter says, no, there's no way you can be handed over to the rulers and die and be crucified. And Jesus says, no, I must. It is necessary that the Son of Man be handed over. It is necessary that I go to Jerusalem. Even at 12, he's got this deep motivation, this deep mission that he is bound and loves to do his Father's will. Jesus' activity is a reflection of who he is. Okay, let's pause for a moment go back to our original question. Why is this the only story the Bible gives us in between infancy and age 30? I think Luke Luke wants to teach us that even though we don't need to know all the details about Jesus' adolescence, we can be crystal clear that even at 12, Jesus knew who his father was and therefore who he was and what he was supposed to do, what he was here for. This is Jesus gathering up all the pronouncements in the first two chapters that people said about him and saying, yes. It's all here, really. His divinity, his humanity, the tension between those two families, his wisdom. And if you feel that there is that tinge of the foreboding sadness that Simeon said would pierce Mary's heart, it's all here. So, if that's what this story is here for, what does it mean for us? I think we're so attracted to superhero movies, or at least speaking for myself, because we love a story of somebody being different, set apart. Think about how many stories, or even like new trilogies that are out these days, are about somebody who stood out from the rest of the class who solved the unsolvable problem, lifted the unliftable stone, you name it. But when we watch superhero movies, we are on the outside. Even in the stories themselves, all the normal folks like us are just blended into all the people running around in the streets dodging cars. In this story, Jesus is clearly set apart. You can feel the tension after he speaks and kind of the separation of everybody going, who is this kid? He is clearly the Son of God, the one that all of Scripture and history has gathered around in order to say, yes, but what if I told you that one of the reasons Jesus came was so that you and I might be brought in to the family, into that same sacred identity and work? It almost, as I was preparing this sermon, I was almost too shocked to even say that because I was scared about, you know, not having Jesus be separate, but the Bible is crystal clear that that is what God is doing. He's bringing us into the family. The book of Luke ends with a final Passover. And Jesus, after his public ministry, is back at the temple. Because he was crucified and rose again during that week of Passover, he flung wide the gates so that all of us might be adopted as sons and daughters. In another scene later in Jesus' life, which has the same familial tension, people come to Jesus to tell him his mother and brothers are outside, and he says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother. Likewise, John 1 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a mind-bending mercy of the God of the universe. J.I. Packer calls it the highest privilege the gospel offers, that he would adopt us. Think about it. At first, you have Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple speaking about his father and discussing the scriptures. At Pentecost in Acts, which again is like the sequel to Luke, after the Spirit of God falls on the people, you have thousands of people 
in the temple, studying the scriptures, just like you and I are doing right now, and they're praying, no doubt, the prayer that Jesus taught them, which says, Our Father, who art in heaven. At first, you just had Jesus, and everyone was confused and on the outside. The story of the Bible is Jesus bringing more and more people into that intimate, beautiful relationship and into the work of bringing more people into the family. Family. What all of this boils down to this morning is captured in the idea of family, and it's relevant to every single person in this room because you're from a family. You were born of a woman. You see, your family is one of the greatest influencers on who you think you are your identity, and what you think you ought to do with your life. So let me give you an example from me. Um, My family is full of outlaws and pastors, and sometimes at the same time. And so my my dad is a pastor, my brother is a pastor, my father-in-law is a pastor, my aunt and uncle are pastors, both grandpas are pastors, my great-grandpa is a pastor, and my dad always jokes it goes back in the tree of Texan Southern Baptist ministers until you get to Paul. Um, (laughs) Whether I like it or not, that legacy, with all its comedies and tragedies, has profoundly shaped me since the day I was walking and talking. I had no choice. That legacy is my legacy. It's who I am. It's what I am. It's who I belong to. My identity is intrinsically bound, whether I like it or not, in being a Cunningham. And that identity spills over into what I do. So my parents never, ever told me or my brother that we needed to go into vocational Christian ministry. If you would have asked us in high school, we would have said, that is not what we want to do. And when we were 12, trust me, we were not like Jesus. We were exploding something or lighting something on fire. We were not in the temple discussing the scriptures. But here we are. And of course, there is much more to my vocational choices than just being from my family. But I'd be foolish to think that my bloodline Growing up around the family trade does not now influence and did not influence what I choose to do with my life. I have friends who are in finance because their parents were in finance, friends who teach because their parents taught. You guys know that story. And even people who do something very different from their parents are no doubt reacting to their bloodline. They're reacting to their last name. It's not a good really or a bad thing. It's just a truth. I want to put forward to you this morning that just as Jesus was the only one in that scene who knew who he was and what he was here for, so he is the one who knows who you are. If you will listen, he wants to tell you. During that second Passover, when Jesus went to the cross, his identity and his work became truly and fully manifest. It was the unfurling of what was only hinted at when he was a 12-year-old boy. And at that point, all of us stand next to the centurion who, who gets it. The penny drops for him and he goes, truly, this was the Son of God. That is the moment where you see that's who this boy is. That's what he was here for. And because of who Jesus is and what he did then, dying and rising again, we are all now able to truly and fully understand who we are and what we are here for in him. Jesus shows us that we, like him, were born of a woman here on earth. You can't get around that. Nobody in this room was not born of a woman. And that is a beautiful thing. It's a true thing. Jesus became born of a woman and in so doing gave that more dignity than like anything. But Jesus would show us on a deeper and more fundamental level 
that we are all children of one heavenly Father. And that just like John says, through receiving Jesus and believing in him, we are given the right to become children of God, to know the Father like Jesus did. Kevin quoted last week, uh, I don't know if you were here for his sermon, but he quoted an early church writer who said this beautiful little phrase, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that men and women might become sons and daughters of God. The Bible teaches that this truth about us, that we have been adopted through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the most true thing about us. It's our truest family because that family will never go away, just as in the situation of Jesus. And that means you're more than a teacher, you're more than a minister, you're more than an accountant, whatever. It's not just a a spiritual ideal or a notion. This shatters bloodlines. It makes your family from different ethnicities, from different countries, tribes, and tongues. This is a real thing that spills over. Before I finish, I would be remiss if I didn't say that as profound and mysterious as this new bloodline in Jesus is, it is equally true that family would prove to be one of the hardest things for people to get around in order to follow Jesus. It was a barrier. There's a tension in this story, like we've talked about, between earthly and heavenly family, and that would continue to play itself out through Luke. So, Jesus comes back and when he is in his public ministry, and in a synagogue once, takes his claim of who his father was and who he is to the bank, and people are offended. People go, we know exactly who this dude is. He's from Nazareth. His dad is a carpenter. I know Joe. I worked with him for a while. I don't know what he's talking about. Jesus would ask people to follow him, and they would say things like, whew, our father's Abraham, buddy, back off. That's what's most precious to us. Or, I just got married, sorry. Or, sorry, I have to go tend to my father. Things like that. It's a bizarre thing, but this is actually true for us as well. And I'm not just pointing fingers. My wife and I have really struggled and tried to look, figure out what this looks like for us. But at times, we don't take our adoption in Christ seriously. We can sometimes idolize our biological families or get too wrapped up in our last names, whether we're trying to be different from them or no different from them. And they can end up being a barrier to fully entering into our eternal family in the kingdom of God. So, I want to put forward to us this morning that all of us live in the tension of two families. And I want to be very clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying your earthly family is bad or you should, so, you should show contempt for them. Jesus doesn't. Jesus went home, cleaned up his room, and grew up in Nazareth. It's beautiful. He loved his mom. He took care of his family. What I am saying is what we see in this passage with Jesus is a very clear priority. It's an ordering. And it's not an ordering that diminishes your earthly family. It's actually an ordering that helps you fully appreciate and live in your earthly family. So let me show you what I mean. This is a perfect time for us to talk about this because most of us just got back from Christmas, whether you flew there, came back, people came here, whatever. You probably have a more crystal clear picture of what your last name means to you than you do most other times of the year. For some of you, that's really, really hard. For some of you, you just had a great time with your family. But either way, this is a beautiful thing because... When that order isn't right, when your earthly family is truly what's giving you your identity, what is giving you your kind of mission of what you're supposed to do with your life, depending on what your parents did, it is a burden that is too great for it to bear, and it can crumble. 
So you can go home and it, it, your family just carries all of that burden. You compare yourself. Don't compare yourself, whatever you're doing. But what happens when you order it right, when you understand the proper ordering, is it frees your family to be what it truly is. If it's great, if you had a great time over Christmas break, you're able to relish that. Thank God for the gift that it is. And if it wasn't, it frees you up to be able to love and think about your identity, to think about who you are, what you're meant to do, outside of the burden and sometimes the darkness of your last name. It frees you up to forgive. And that applies to us regardless of who we are and whatever our family situation is. You could be 12 right now, you could be 20, you could be 80. You could be single, you could be married, you could have kids, you could not have kids. In every family relation, that ordering of when we're able to understand our true identity is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's good. So I want to finish this morning by asking us some W questions. Who are you? Who are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Do you know who your family is? Look around you. I'm serious. Actually, look around you. Who are we, Church of the Resurrection? Do we think that all of us gathered here today are family, are brothers and sisters in a more fundamental and enduring way than your own nuclear family? I confess, I, I don't think I've ever fully appreciated that. Do we, just, do we think that or do we shake hands at the peace, drink coffee, go home, and live into our own last names and let that dictate our life? Do we realize that in Christ we have an eternal family legacy, an eternal family dynasty that is ours? Do we realize that when we are called, we're called to live into that family, to let that dictate what we do, where we spend our time, even dictate what we call home in those visceral, deep places of our heart when we think about home? If you're here visiting and are not a follower of Jesus, did you know that because Jesus became born of a woman just like you and me and died on a cross and rose again, that by believing in him and calling upon his name, he has given us the right to become children of God into a new and just vibrant, beautiful, eternal family. I would encourage you, if you're interested in kind of the mechanics of that and how you know you're in God's families and how do, you know, how do you feel that and practice that, Kevin preached a sermon last week that was beautiful, that talked a lot about that. To finish, we must, like Mary, begin by treasuring the truths of who Jesus is in our heart and what he did. And only then, only after that, from there, we let Jesus transform our understanding of family, our understanding of how we use our nuclear families, relate to them, our understanding of earthly adoption, our understanding of belonging. I think this is one of the most amazing things that I know I don't relish and live into that much. And potentially it can be a rebuke we need to hear. In a few minutes we're going to say the creed, actually a few seconds. And when we do that, we're going to affirm what Jesus knew about himself when he was 12. And then shortly after, we're going to pray, that Jesus, pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray together in God's house that starts with our Father. 
These are not just liturgies. It's not just a, a spiritual idea. This is the most true thing about you and me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.